This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold Golden and Gregory. Welcome to Energy Matters, a show about how you can save money on your utility bills, use technology wisely, and live a more sustainable lifestyle. Here's your host, veteran energy regulator and clean energy expert, Commissioner Tim Eccles. Thank you, Scott Slade. I'm not Tim Eccles. I'm Casey Boyce, regular co-host of Energy Matters, filling in this week while Tim is on vacation. Welcome to Energy Matters. It's always a great day to be saving energy, using technology wisely, and living a more sustainable life. And I'm joined today by Joan Kowolf, who is the Senior Director of Resilience and Utility Strategies at Emory University. Good morning, Joan. How are you? Good morning, Casey. I'm fine. How are you doing? Doing all right. Welcome to Energy Matters. Glad to have you. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, let's start off. Where, where do you, where did you come from? How did you end up at uh, at, Ener- at Emory? Yeah, so I'm a mechanical engineer. I graduated from Bucknell University, uh, originally from Richmond, Virginia. But leaving Pennsylvania after school, I pursued um, the energy industry and worked for two former utility companies, Philadelphia Electric, that's now Exelon, and Northeast Utilities. So worked the nuclear industry while I was at the utilities um, and then moved over to energy trading, um, which happened with the deregulation up in the Northeast back in the late 90s. So it's kind of an exciting time, worked the wholesale markets of Neepool. In the PGM market up there? Yep, and yeah. then went down to um, Maryland with pg e Energy Trading and and work the PGM market. So for those of you on listening, it's it's the wholesale market. We don't have it down in the Southeast, but it just allows retail end users to purchase their energy from multiple suppliers. Very interesting. Um, That must have been a really interesting ride to to go through that deregulation and have that trading uh, start up. What what was the most interesting thing that uh, that you saw or experienced during that time? Yeah, so one of my most interesting, less technical assignment was to calculate our... um, bankruptcy position when Enron went under. So, oh my. Yeah. So PG Energy Trading um, traded wholesale energy and had Enron as their counterparty. And so all of us left when Enron went bankrupt was trying to figure out how much money we might get cents on the dollars in the bankruptcy court. So yeah, that was very interesting. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, also, also did some fun things, had a um, gas trading desk and a coal trading desk and being on the phone with with folks out in Russia trying to buy coal um, w- was very interesting. They, um, let's just say your your typical business negotiations aren't how, how it happens with the coal industry and, you know, even working with folks in Russia and South America. So those are all very eye-opening, um, very exciting times. That's yeah. pretty incredible. And, you know, one of the things, that, and, you know, maybe you can speak to this, but I, I learned uh, a while back, and our listeners probably don't know that, um, you know, utilities obviously have to provide energy 24-7 whenever folks demand it, but the trading desks aren't open 24-7. So, you know, for gas in particular, natural gas, all of those trades are settled before the weekend, and then it just kind of rides out Saturday and Sunday, and, and everything settles back up again on Monday. Oh, yeah. Did you run into that when you were? It, it was fun. So the the real traders. So as an engineer, I'm pretty risk adverse, and so I would not be a very good trader. You're you're right. They would close every position by Friday and sleep well over the weekend, and you know not have any open positions and start it all again on Monday. So yeah, it was very very interesting. A different mindset uh, to work with, but it was very fun. Well, yeah. very cool. So how did you come from Maryland down to Georgia? Yeah. So so after um, the bankruptcy, I was, you know, happily unemployed for a few months and the University of Maryland College Park had posted an energy manager position to help oversee their new 27 and a half megawatt combined heat and power plant come online. And they needed someone who had power generation experience as well as gas procurement because they had to buy their own fuel for the plant. So, you know, that sounded like a pretty fun job and um, took that position with University of Maryland back in 2005 and actually had a a great, um, great position, worked on the CHP, but also it was a time when we were starting to do very large renewable power purchase agreements 
through the PJM market. So we aggregated all the university system schools together with the State Department of General Services and as one big buying entity could buy in the wholesale market. So we actually entered into 20-year power purchase agreements for a 17-megawatt solar array that was located up at Mount St. Mary's in um, Maryland and then actually two wind farms on the western part of the state and you know so really we're able to bring those large solar and wind PPAs as an aggregation to the state of Maryland so that that was very fun um, and then got recruited to come down to Emory to to try to bring some innovation um, with generation to Emory uh, I think they were looking to increase uh, whether it was combined heat and power or renewable purchases but what really wanted to move from just being a facilities provider to providing um, innovation innovation and power supply to the campus. So I joined Emory in 2013. Very cool. And, you know, you, you mentioned, I think it was 2004 that you started uh, working with the University of Maryland, right? Yep, five, yep. 2005, okay. Yep. Um, and my sense is, and, you know, given your background in, in having traded in the wholesale markets, that Colleges and universities really were among the first movers in, you know, clean technology and renewable generation and things like that. I mean, was the University of Maryland one of the early big buyers of the wind and, and solar projects that you spoke of? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, You're right. I think the universities had commitments. They had the um, American College and University President's Climate Commitment that a lot of universities had signed on to and to be able to reach these aggressive goals of carbon neutrality um, had to look at ways to bring renewables not just from facilities on their campuses but how to invest in larger scale what we would call utility scale projects for their behalf. So yes, um, actually, you know, Maryland was at the forefront of it and I was just excited to be able to participate in that. That's very cool. And so what was your experience going from a place where you had access to wholesale markets and, and could actually, you know, find people who were developing projects coming down here to Georgia where, you know, we're completely vertically integrated here, right? You know, whether you're talking Georgia Power or the EMCs or the municipal utilities, um, that there's no wholesale market for you to, to buy from. What, what was that experience like? Yeah, so I, I kind of wish Commissioner Eccles w was here to join us. He would probably laugh, but I was like, oh, I'll just go down to Georgia and get the Public Service Commission to deregulate the market. You know, that was my like my laughing line when I was leaving Maryland. So um, little did I know um, how far we were from having those conversations. And not that it's needed, but it is. It's t it took me years, several years to figure out how we could get Emory to have a foothold in some larger, whether it was renewable purchases or self-generation. It, it really took a while. And, um, you know, I think I've made small steps on behalf of Emory, you know, but look forward to making some larger steps working in collaboration with the commission and Georgia Power going forward. So it, it sounds like uh, the experience was a lot easier when you had a market to, to buy from than when you've got to kind of do it within that completely vertically integrated structure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I still have to re-educate myself, you know, with, with net metering just moving forward here. I mean, we've had net metering up in the Northeast and, you know, you know, it's almost been two decades. So, yeah, it's, it is a considerable change. Um, and... It probably, I've probably um, pushed Emory a little too far sometimes in directions, not understanding the barriers, and then had to retrace a little bit and take some slightly uh, new directions, but learning every year. Yeah. Well, we're glad you're down here and, and glad that you're pushing things forward. Um, as our regular listeners know, uh, I'm based out of Decatur and, you know, hanging out at, at home as we record this. We're, we're doing these uh, shows virtually here uh, for the time being. And, you know, the city of Decatur's really had a strong partnership with Emory and with Agnes Scott College, um, which is located in the city, uh, to, to work on energy and sustainability topics. And it, it's great to have you guys 
guys as as neighbors um, and you know see the the good work that that you all are doing. Um, you know, from the the standpoint of overall energy, um, you know, we're going to talk in a little bit, maybe in the next segment, about uh, the work that you're doing on getting solar for much of Emory's campus. But but could you talk a little bit about some of the things that you did, you know, kind of in your first years getting acclimated to, you know, what's going on on the ground in terms of, you know, we talked about the markets, but kind of what Emory's was doing around energy and, and you know, what you've been up to since you, you arrived here in Georgia? Sure. So Emory's always had um, progressive and aggressive goals for energy reduction, which leads to greenhouse gas reduction. So I was fortunate to to have a very strong office of sustainability already working on uh, some of these efforts uh, before I arrived. Uh, one of the first things we did on campus was we were replacing one of our large boilers and we looked at um, actually having the boiler, the new boiler operate at a higher pressure so that we could then take that output pressure, put it through a steam turbine generator and produce electricity, almost almost similar to a combined heat and power, just not with a gas turbine, but it's like a back pressure steam turbine. So it was our first cogeneration project um, that has a one megawatt uh, electrical generator with it. So that was our first Um, kind of move into the self-generation and from there we've been looking at opportunities to add solar and you know looking forward to to talking about our our new solar efforts. Great well when we come back uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what uh, Joan and uh, Emory University have done around energy. You're listening to Energy Matters. The show is at Matters Radio on Twitter. I'm at Casey Boyce on Twitter. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Gas South believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit, and the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. Gas South. The difference is good. BMVW is the place in Metro Atlanta to get your used hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or fully electric car. They're located on the south side near the airport, but it is well worth the drive. Go online to look at their inventory at ev-hybrid.com and set up a time to see the vehicle or even drive it for up to three days. I don't know of anywhere else in Metro Atlanta that you can do that. That's ev-hybrid.com, the best deal in town. ev-hybrid.com, ev-hybrid.com. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold, Golden, and Gregory, an AmLaw 200 law firm with 180 attorneys in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. They take a business sensibility approach when advising clients. They provide industry knowledge, attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success. AGG subscribes to the belief not if, but how. We thank John Gornall and all the attorneys and staff at AGG for sponsoring our show. Welcome back. You're listening to Energy Matters. I'm Casey Boyce, your host this weekend. I'm at Casey Boyce on Twitter. The show is at Matters Radio. Please feel free to hit us up with any questions or comments that you might have. Uh, this morning, we're talking with Joan uh, Kowal, who is the Senior Director of Resilience and Utility Strategies at Emory University. And before the break, Joan, you were talking a little bit about some of the initial projects that you had done around energy at Emory University. And you mentioned something, uh, actually, even back to your University of Maryland days, uh, around combined heat and power. And I'm wondering if you can uh, just kind of briefly describe for our listeners what that is and you know who uses it. Sure, glad to. So the idea of combined heat and power is the combination of having a generation source that uses a fuel and most generation um, emits heat as part of its cycle to produce the electricity. And so the idea is to improve the efficiency of that electric production by capturing the waste heat. And so that's why the term combining heat and power, it it makes what would have been just an electric generator 
um, more efficient by adding production with heat as well. So in Maryland, our combined heat and power plant was a gas turbine that used natural gas, similar to a jet engine, to spin a turbine that then spun a generator to produce electricity. The exhaust from that combustion of the gas turbine was then captured in something we called a heat recovery steam generator, really just somewhat like a boiler. So it basically produces steam, and then that steam is put through another turbine that rotates and produces electricity as well. So at Emory, the back end of that process was we were taking steam from the boiler, putting that steam through a turbine that rotates then rotates a generator that it produces electricity. So we were producing steam for the campus as well as electricity for the campus, um, hence the term combined heat and power. Gotcha. And so for the, the heating needs, obviously, we're, we're down here in the south and uh, we, we have some heating needs, but it's uh, probably quite a bit warmer than it is in uh, Maryland. I mean, are there year-round needs for, for the heat piece, the steam part that you spoke of? Yeah, great question. So I, I think a lot of people might not know that at Emory, we have a large steam distribution system that runs all over campus to our buildings and yes in the in the winter we use that steam for heating but in the summer what we use that heat for is to remove remove humidity so not sure everyone wants to get into their um, psychometric chart but what we do is we cool the air and that brings down the temperature Um, but it's actually very moist, cool air. And so what we then do is heat the air back up and dehumidify it. So the steam used during the summer is for dehumidification. And we actually use probably more than most people would realize just because of all the humidity we have in the Atlanta area. Very interesting. You know, I learned recently about uh, on the residential side uh, that there are heat pumps that enable reheat on dehumidification, which is a very similar kind of thing, right? You run the air conditioning a little bit more than you'd need to to bring the moisture out of the air and then you fire up the auxiliary heat to bring the, the temperature of the air coming out of the air handler to a comfortable temperature. It sounds like it's it's a similar kind of process, yeah? Yes, exactly. And where people get confused is they'll come in a building and in the summer and they'll be like, oh, this is cold, we're wasting energy. And it, it gets very difficult to explain to them that as you increase the temperature, you're actually using more energy because now you're using the heat to drive up the temperature. So it's, you know, if we set our buildings at 72, we're actually using overall potentially less energy than we were if we would move it up to 74 degrees because we'd be using more steam or energy to heat it back up and drive out the humidity even more. Fascinating. I, I didn't know that and yeah. I suspect most of our listeners didn't either. That's a, that's great to know. So uh, tell us a little bit more about some of the other projects that you worked on. Um, you know, this combined heat and power plant you said was one of your first ones. What else did you do uh, at, at Emory when you arrived? Yeah, so we, um, we looked at ways to to build more efficient buildings. And so one of the strategies we had was there's certain code requirements on how buildings um, need to be built in order to meet standard codes, but there are additional technologies that you could add that go above and beyond code requirements that drive down the energy use. And what we call it is the EUI or the energy use um, intensity, which is an energy use per square foot. So We have a new student center on campus, and one of the things we did early on in that design concept was to target a very low energy use per square foot. And that helped the design team look at innovative measures that they could include in the design that would drive down or or improve efficiency, drive down energy use. So we were able to add a very large geothermal field um, to that building there is i don't know if anyone's been to the emory's campus but we have a very large field across from the student center so there are a large number of geothermal wells there and um, geothermal wells in our area work a lot like a heat pump Um, underground the temperature is about 60 degrees year round and so what you do is you you're either pulling heat from the 60 degrees when temperatures are colder than that, or you're putting heat into the ground when temperatures are above 60 degrees. So you're, you're doing a heat exchange um, that isn't using a lot of energy. You're just using um, the, 
the naturally occurring temperature in the ground and you flow water through it as a heat exchanger. So that was added to the student center. We're using some other technologies. A chilled beam approach allows us to reduce the amount of fan usage. Um, a lot of buildings have a lot of blowing air in them and that takes a lot of energy to blow air um, to get the, um, the heated air and the cooled air around for the occupants. So there's another technology called chilled beam. And, and what does that look like? Is that is that kind of like cooling down some metal and having sort of have it absorb radiant heat or something like that? What it, yeah, you know what? I mean, Casey, that's a, that's a pretty good analogy to it. it it doesn't get a lot more complicated than that it um it does it, it kind of just it does the temperature exchange locally in the room in those beams that are, are in the room i think the concern in our area is to make sure you don't have um humidity that you don't get right. condensate on them and so you have to have a really tight uh kind of building envelope so that you're mm -hmm. not bringing in humidity, but but that's in general um, what it is. Um, there are some other technologies. There's the radiant heat that I know some of your listeners might you know, be aware of where you could put in a bathroom where the floors or the tiled floors or where the heat's generated uh, because that's where you know, most of the temperature need is, is, is yeah. lower. And so just strategically placing the... Um, the conditioned air where you need it. Uh, you know, a, a lot of buildings are very, have very high ceilings and pockets and, you know, there's no reason to have the, you know, the highly conditioned air up at 20 feet if everyone's down at five feet. So it's really just being strategic in how we're conditioning our spaces. Uh, we're also looking at changing the controls to know when there's occupants. So making sure that we haven't conditioned spaces well beyond when the last person in the um, room was there. So we do it with lighting all the time. Now we're connecting the lighting occupancy sensors with the um, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning as well. Very cool. So I, I, we've talked a bit on the show in the past about um, you know, air sealing and, and high performance building and, and really making sure that you use energy um, as wisely as possible before investing in renewables. Um, and it sounds like you guys are doing that in Emory. And it sounds like you're doing both efficiency, which is, you know, same outcome, right? Same temperature, light, et cetera, with uh, less energy as well as conservation, like the occupancy sensors that you guys talked about. Um, do, so as a mechanical engineer, but coming out of power uh, trading and utility work, did you find that those skills transferred to being able to do some of this stuff with the facilities and, and talk with your colleagues that were, were making this happen? Yeah, no, I think I think it's a it's a great um, kind of a dual area of expertise. Um, I know I don't probably have, you know, all the technical details that my field technicians had, you know, in the HVAC area, but I felt like I could ask the right questions and understand the responses. I, I might not be, you know, the best person to know how to implement it, but that's why we have, you know, people with their areas of expertise. And so I think it's really served me well. Um, recently, when we were talking about my, my change in job title, I was more in day-to-day -day operations and while I really enjoyed that experience, I think when you're in day-to-day -day operations, it's hard to carve out the time for uh, looking into the future and creating strategies. And um, you get caught up in a little more reactive rather than proactive work. And so I'm really excited that my new position sits more in the master planning area. And I'm able to help focus the campus on the future of resilience and utility and energy strategies to help us meet our carbon reductions. And just briefly in the last 30 seconds or so we've got in this segment, uh, I mean, do you find that that's something that is um, needed in a lot of organizations in terms of that that forward thinking um, rather than the, the reactive, particularly when it comes to things like energy and sustainability? Yes, absolutely. I think you, you've probably heard it through the Department of Defense. They've been focusing on resilience now for the last, you know, five years plus. Uh, there's just a lot of things outside of our control that we have to start preparing for. And so having that proactive view, um, while Georgia Power is very reliable, there's just other 
uh, things that can happen outside of their control that we want to have planned for. So, um, yep, that's where we're, we're focused. Well, that's great. Well, stick with us. This has been a great conversation. Uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about solar at Emory University. You're listening to Energy Matters. I'm Casey Boyce. Creative Solar USA is a Georgia-based turnkey installer of innovative solar panel systems. They're dedicated to energy solutions for both your home and business. With their NABCEP certified installers, they ensure their clients receive the highest quality of solar energy systems in the industry. Contact CSUSA today at 770-485-7438 or go to creativesolarusa.com. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. We talk all the time on Energy Matters about buying a used EV instead of a new one. Let someone else pay the depreciation. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, can fix you up. Go to their website at ev-hybrid.com to see the ever-changing inventory. BMVW has every brand, every type of EV, and they'll even let you test drive it for three days, show you how to charge it and drive it for maximum performance. That's ev-hybrid.com. ev-hybrid.com. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by BMVW Auto Sales. Support for Energy Matters comes from Sterling Planet. The folks at Sterling Planet want to help you meet your environmental and business goals with renewable energy. From understanding RECs or renewable energy certificates to a carbon offset plan to innovative white tags energy efficiency certificates, they can help you navigate the corporate green energy world. See more at sterlingplanet.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Energy Matters. We've been having a great conversation here with Joan Kowal, who is with Emory University. Uh, we've been talking about what they've been doing on energy and energy efficiency. And we want to uh, end up this uh, program talking a little bit about what they have been doing on solar. Uh, so, Joan, Emory just recently announced a really big solar project. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So, we have been looking to add renewable energy at campus now uh, for the last, you know, almost in the last decade. Um, I know Keynote Howard, our um, previous director of sustainability, had mentioned they'd been looking into adding solar. And so we have gone out into the market several times with solicitations for renewable energy. Uh, previously, we participated in Georgia Power's program and do have two facilities on campus that have solar energy, but that energy is actually uh, directly connected to Georgia Power System. And we were looking for renewable energy. Is this the, the Ready yes. program? That, yes, okay. yep, solar, yep, the Ready program. So we have, uh, as I mentioned, two projects in that program, And but we wanted once the, um, the new regulation changes that allowed us to enter into solar energy purchase, purchase agreement, SEPAs, several years ago, we wanted to get back out in the market and install solar directly on our campus. And so maybe before we get into what the, the project is, could you explain for our listeners what a solar energy purchase agreement is? Sure. So the idea of a solar energy purchase agreement is... Um, first of all, there's investment tax credits that exist um, through the, the federal uh, program. And because Emory's private, we would not be allowed to participate in these investment tax credits. So what a solar energy purchase agreement does, it, it allows us to have a third party who can come and install the solar, own and operate the solar array, on our facilities, so we have a lease agreement with them to install the solar arrays. They can then monetize or take uh, take credit for these investment tax credits through their investors and pass through that reduction in cost to us through an energy rate. So we do not have to invest anything up front as far as a capital investment. Uh, we just pay for the energy that's delivered to us. And in most cases, we try to consume all the energy that's produced at the building or the location that the solar's installed. And then we do not have to purchase that energy um, from Georgia Power. 
So Okay, so it sounds a lot like a, a performance contract. We had Ben Cowart from GIFA on a couple of weeks ago on the show, and he talked about performance contracting where a third-party company would come in and make energy efficiency upgrades to a facility without that facility or business having to put the money in up front for that, and it would be kind of a pay-as-you-go as, as they save. It sounds like it's a very similar kind of thing for solar. So the risk sits with the owner and operator so if energy is not being produced, we don't make a payment. So it's not a fixed payment each month. It's only a payment for what's delivered. So it's actually even less okay. riskier than you know an, an um, energy performance type contract. And so that would account for the seasonal changes in, yes. um, in production. I mean, I've got solar on my house, and we produce a whole lot more solar during the summer than we do during the winter. So yeah, Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so it's nice. It's nice that you don't pay for what you don't get. Yeah. So uh, how large is this project that that you're doing? It sounds like it's pretty massive. Yeah. So let me try to put it in context. Um, Emory University at our main campus has its own electrical system. And so we have one big meter with Georgia Power. And at that meter, we at peak time, so in the summer on the hottest day, on the hottest hour, can use approximately 42 megawatts. and this solar PV that we're installing, nameplate capacity is about 10% of that. So while it's five and a half megawatts, um, that's direct current. Um, and once you convert that to alternating current, which was what that 42 megawatts was, it's about 10%. And, you know, in a scale to a house, I mean, I think we're, you know, we're talking probably like a thousand times bigger. You know, it's just... It's a large, we're like a mini city almost um, with that solar array. The Where it gets a little confusing, and while that's a big number, 10% of our peak capacity, the actual energy use is closer to 3 or 4% because, as you described, you know, the solar is seasonal. It's also hours in the day, and so it produces about 20% of its nameplate capacity. So it doesn't yeah. produce in every hour of the day. It produces about 20% of the time on an annual hourly basis. So it is. It's a big It's a big uh, installation. It's going in uh, six, 16 buildings on top of roofs of buildings and um, parking garage canopies. And that really is going to be, I think, the most attractive thing for visitors and staff and students at our campus is to have this shaded parking on the top of the parking garages and cherry street did a great job of uh, combining the rooftop and the solar canopies of the parking so emory could collectively pay one energy price so we don't have to distinguish between the location which made it very very easy for us to manage that's fantastic. And, and we'll try to post up on the show pictures of a, a parking lot canopy structure uh, just down the road from you that Agnes Scott did on, on one of the yes. parking decks a, a number of years ago. Um, so check that out at Matters Radio on Twitter. Um, Joan, for folks who want to get more uh, social media about uh, Emory and the project, where can they find uh, find you guys on Twitter? Yeah, we're at Emory Green. So please look us up and follow us. Awesome. So, you know, you talked about the size of the array. Um, was there a, a specific strategy in terms of sizing that? that? That is, you know, is there a reason that you didn't go bigger or smaller than, than what you ended up with? Yeah, so, so good question. Um, for buildings that are directly connected to Georgia Power, there's a limitation that the solar array can't exceed more than 125% of that building's um, peak demand. And so again, what Georgia Power's trying to make sure is that their system can support the solar array and that we're not exporting to their system um, because that just, it gets complicated for them to have everyone exporting back to their system. So the 125% limitation helps them be able to manage um, multiple solar installations on their system. So we had to strategically limit sizes. We have an array going in over at the Emory Conference Center parking garage and a building right next to that. And so we had to limit the sizes um, there. On our campus, because we have this large electrical infrastructure with a one meter, we're able to 
put in larger installations because we can let a neighboring building use the energy. So it never makes it back to Georgia Power System. It stays on the Emory distribution system. So we have one parking garage where we're hoping to install over a megawatt of energy and maybe 20% of that will be used at the actual parking facility. But the nearby um, building can use the excess energy that it produces. So yeah, we really tried to maximize how much we could install um, throughout the campus. That's great. And, and do you have opportunities or designs to increase the amount of solar that you've got installed on site down the road? Or is this kind of the full build out and you'll, you'll be looking for other technologies um, you know, for, for additional energy needs? Yeah, we, we really did try to maximize all of the available rooftops and parking garages for now. What we are doing is looking at new construction and incorporating solar on our, our newly constructed or planned um, construction building. So we will continue to add this solar for new facilities. There's also some healthcare facilities we're going to be visiting to see if we can include solar rays as well. Very cool. And, and given the the arrangement with the, the SEPA that you spoke about earlier, do you anticipate that this is going to save Emory money right out of the gate or over the long term? Or is this something that you're mm -hmm. paying more for the solar energy? Kind of give our listeners a sense of, of sort of what the financial picture looks like. Sure. So um, we, we've structured the agreements to help us be cost neutral out of the gate. I think it was going to be, you know, very hard for Emory to, to pay a significant premium. Um, there's an escalation within the contract, um, but we feel as though the escalation, it actually could be lower than what Georgia Power's rates end up looking like over the next 20 years. Um, you know, how I like to describe it is it's, an, it's a hedge, meaning that it's a fixed price. We'll be paying for a portion of our energy and it's locked in. Right now, we don't know what our forward prices will look like with Georgia Power that, you know, they just had a great, um, you know, fuel clause reduction because of low natural gas prices. But we don't know what future rates will look like. And so it's just a, a small segment of our energy procurement that's now fixed pricing for the next 20 years. Excellent. And just in the last 30 seconds or so here, um, when when are the panels going to be installed? When can uh, when can folks uh, who are in the Emory area swing by and and actually see these? Great. So we actually had crane lifts this past weekend. So I can maybe we can we would we'll probably have some pictures posted, but we lifted the solar panels on three of our buildings this past weekend. So those will be going up in the next six weeks. Uh, we have a phased installation over the summer. So we're trying to get a number of the parking garages um, installed between now and the end of August. Um, so those will be completed. We'll then switch over to some rooftops in the fall and hope to complete everything by next summer, the balance of the parking garages. So you should be able to see evidence of them on the parking garages by the end of the summer. Very exciting. Well, congratulations. Thanks again for joining us today on Energy Matters. Stick with us, we'll be right back. The electric car revolution is coming, and the choices are growing. Gem cars are everywhere. You've seen these low-speed electric vehicles on college campuses, downtown Atlanta streets, and resort islands like St. Simons and Jekyll. Gem cars are street legal, equipped with seatbelts, headlights, and a tag, and can operate on roads with speed limits of 35 miles per hour or less. If you want to know more about these electric cars and trucks, six-passenger shuttles, mobile repair service, or full vehicle wraps, go to GemCarService.com. That's G-E-M, CarService.com. Tim Eccles here for Solar Sun World. No doubt you've seen solar panels popping up all over Georgia. If you want the precision of German engineering when it comes to solar, Solar Sun World is for you. The folks there understand the complexities of solar and how to make it work. From tax credits to inverters to accelerated depreciation, they'll unpack it all. They've been in business for over 25 years. To find out more, go to SolarSunWorld.com. That's SolarSunWorld.com. Energy Matters would like to thank Gas South for its support of the show. Gas South has a no deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. Gas South, the difference is good. We interrupt this episode of Energy Matters to take you outdoors. On the road again. 
Uh, good morning. My name is Marilyn Brown, and I'm a Regents Professor in, at uh, Georgia Institute of Technology. And I first came to know uh, Tim Eccles in 2010 when he was elected to become Commissioner of the Public Service Commission of Georgia, representing the Athens area, where he earned several degrees at that other university across the state. Uh, I began my term as a utility commissioner in that same year, in 2010. Oh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I want, There's not much. Okay. okay. But I like this parallel because uh, I was commissioner of the Tennessee Valley Authority for my first term and was very miraculously pleased to be appointed to a second term about the same time he was very easily elected to his second term. Uh, my term ended last year and now I spend my time doing research and teaching students about climate change and climate change solutions. I have six of my master's students here somewhere. They've been dedicated to helping take notes and run meetings. They're part of the Master's of Sustainable Energy and Environmental Management, the inaugural class. Uh, my, um, uh, during, during this time, uh, Tim has become one of the most technologically sophisticated and media savvy utility commissioners in the country. Uh, through his media mes messaging, Tim is crystal clear about what his priorities are. And many of them overlap with mine, <laughs> for instance. More solar, more electric, more energy efficiency, more electric vehicles, and we gotta finish Plant Vocal. Uh, Tim can also speak knowledgeably about state-of-the-art new technologies, microgrids and renewable natural gas. Um, when he doesn't know something, what he does is bring experts together on the air on his radio show. So check it out, Saturday mornings, WGAU Radio in Atlanta. So without further ado, uh, it's my honor and privilege to introduce Tim to you, and I'm excited to learn what he has to say about what a changing climate means for Georgia. Thank you. Uh, let's just finish up with this thing um, <laughs> here. I, I, I'm going to tell you, I, this is so unfair, what you guys <laughs> have done to me. I mean, all of you who've ever ever given a speech in public, you're sitting here going, that is so wrong. I mean, you totally agree with me on this, don't you? To make me go after her? I'm just, I'm, I'm really stunned. You know, I thought it was an honor to get the invitation here, and now I see the real agenda. talking about being uncomfortable. I'm sitting there, I'm the one uncomfortable. I needed to go to the bathroom and I was afraid to get up and go. <laughs> Call me out for that too. I'm just chunking my entire presentation and I, um, I, I wanna draw your attention to, to Hog Hammock, yes. to Sapelo Island. And you know, I, I know that Republicans uh, are, I mean, she's taking a couple of shots at the president here. I know Republicans, we get blasted for any number of things from not using the C word, right? Not using the C word to being uncaring. And I just, here's what I want to appeal to you is do not paint everyone with the same broad brush. Right. It's unfair right. for you to do that. Yeah, yeah, who's clapping? Who's Andres, you're the man. You're the man. Thank you. This is Hog Hammock. This is a solar pavilion that was erected for the public library there as a result of Dennis Coleman and I walking around the island as I'm helping him try to get some zoning issues settled with, for his house uh, because there's a group of Republican commissioners that control that county. And I get a call from, uh, from Virginia, that Dennis has purchased some land there. He's having some trouble getting a house built. And I'm down there, and he says to me, man, Tim, it'd be great if you could do something for this community. And as we walked around, 
if you've ever been to, any of you ever been to Hog Hammock, uh, so a quarter of the room, you know uh, about the old cars that are there, and, the, and, and it's just hard to get things off the island. It's hard, it's hard, to, uh, it's hard to get anything on the island because you've got to pay to get it on there. But we built a $35,000 solar pavilion with, with nice industrial picnic tables that are going to last 100 years, and that power is powering that community library, helping them with their energy costs for the next 30 or 40 years. I mean, that's something that we can get excited about. Yes. As you were pelting me, I, I reached into my notebook and grabbed, grabbed a little, a, a little um, notepad from the UCLA Luskin Conference Center where I just returned from yesterday at the 100% Clean Cities Conference. It's the only person from Georgia there and probably the only Republican uh, that, that was there. And in our breakout group that morning, an African-American woman in my group says to our group, because we're talking about messaging about clean cities to red and purple states. That was what my little small group was doing. And she said to me, and I quote, I don't have time to worry about polar bears if I can't put food on my table. Amen? Yeah. So this, you know, certainly it is a concern. It should be a concern for all of us to help take better care of our neighbors and, and those around. And for me as a state official, my neighbors are in all 159 counties. I have a duty to take care of folks in my state. That's why at three o'clock today, we're doing a conference call with Harambee House and a lot of other Savannah nonprofits to talk about going door to door in the poorest parts of your city in January, February, and March and helping to identify energy efficiency upgrades that need to be made. You don't even know about this call today? Somebody from your staff's gonna be on this phone call. Yeah, now who's talking? Now who's preaching? Now who needs to go on a little guilt trip? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Get with a program. But we're going to do this in Savannah because Edward Grisham, uh, an African-American contractor, came to me at a listening session that I was doing with Representative Carl Gilliard in Garden City, and he says... Tim, what if we concentrate in one given area and bring all the folks together that we can to identify needs, whether it's, whether it's insulation, a broken window, a wheelchair ramp, whatever. Let's combine forces and see if we can help. Let's do this experiment. And so we've got a conference call today with all the folks that want to be a part of that in Savannah to be able to make that happen we'll see if we can pull it off. But look, if you don't ask, if you don't have a vision, you're certainly not going to accomplish it. So I think we've got a lot of things to be proud about in our state. And you know, one of the things, one of the things that came out of this clean, 100% clean, uh, clean energy conference that's organized by Jeanette Gare's parent group, I guess Environment America, was that words matter? And, just the word clean. What does it mean to you? Because I'm telling you, there were 30 states represented on the UCLA campus, and it meant different things to different people that were there. And one of my pet peeves is, is when people weaponize words like clean, like climate, and they use it to beat me over the head with it. It bothers me. And let me tell you why it's disingenuous. And let me tell you why you need to ask more clarifying questions when people put forward policy ideas to you. I mean, I, I didn't have the opportunity to go to Georgia Tech. I'm, I'm, I've got three degrees from the University of Georgia, you know, one of them English. What do you do with that? Nonprofit organizations, public relations, and then basket weaving was my minor. That's a joke on the basket weaving. But words, 
words matter. And it mattered out there as they, as city after city got up and said, well, we, we decided to be 100% by this date. So when, when matters. Some of them had pressure relief valves. If we don't, we can escape from our commitment. Does that matter? Does it matter to you that someone commits to do something, but they got a little wiggle room? How would you say that? Wiggle room? You good with wiggle room from Harvard? What about folks that do executive orders, as the California senator said, versus some kind of statute or ordinance that's binding? All of these things matter. So when you, chart, when you start pelting Republican leaders about why aren't we more clean, you better define it. The Sierra Club got up and defined it. They said, we really need clean, renewable power. And the Sierra Club rep outlined exactly what that was. Because clean is different than the renewable. I mean, in Georgia, as the organizer of the Luskin Center came up to me afterwards, sensing my panic, kind of like I'm experiencing here, and he said to me, Commissioner, you, you really shouldn't be worrying about this. I said, why? He said, because you're in charge there and you get to decide what it means. And that's our show for today. I'm Casey Boyce and energy does matter. Have a great day, everyone. Gas South believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit. And the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. Gas South. The difference is good. You've heard about Jim Cars on Energy Matters. Made by Polaris in Anaheim, California. These street-legal, small electric vehicles go where golf carts are not allowed. Equipped with seatbelts, headlights, optional doors, and a tag, Jim Cars and Trucks are perfect for shuttles, corporate, or college campus use. In fact, Georgia Tech has over 100 of them. The new generation Gems have many options when selecting the battery type, onboard chargers, and enclosures to suit the climate. Go to GemCarService.com to find out more. That's G-E-M CarService.com.